0: Father, thanks for today. Thank you for making us in your image and likeness, for having a love toward us that endures our sin and rebellion, for being steadfast in your pursuit of us, for redeeming us and calling us your own. We do pray for your help even today as we think about how to seek you, how to pursue you. Pray that you would give us wisdom and insight and understanding and different ways that we can grow in godliness as we seek to train for righteousness and seek you. Pray that you'd quiet our minds and help us to hear what you want to say to us this afternoon. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so last week, the big things we talked about, we talked about Bible intake, part two, we talked about worship, so Sent out some assignments last week, uh, memorization, there's coffee laying on its side on the floor. Memorization and mapping, verse mapping. We talked about worship as an all-of-life thing, trying to integrate that into a single-story life. Had some exercises with that. Hopefully you got to practice some of those. So we're going to move on to a few more spiritual disciplines today. You can see them up there. We're going to talk about silence and solitude, fasting and prayer. So we've got a lot of ground to cover again today. So we'll hop in and get started and just do your best to absorb the information we're going to throw at you. If you're reading through the book, that's a great way to go back and refresh this coming week on the things we talk about. So I'm going to start this afternoon by talking about silence and solitude. So let's start by just talking about some definitions. These are Whitney's definitions for silence and then for solitude. He says silence is the voluntary and temporary abstention from speaking so that certain spiritual goals might be sought. The voluntary and temporary abstention from speaking so that certain spiritual goals might be sought. And then solitude is the spiritual discipline of voluntarily and temporarily withdrawing to privacy for spiritual purposes. So often, when we think about silence and solitude, we think about them together. We kind of lump them together as a single discipline. But they can be separated out into separate disciplines. So, for example, it's possible to practice the spiritual discipline of silence in the presence of other peoples. My favorite example of this there's a story of Dallas Willard. He was a professor of philosophy at USC, he was a Christian. He was teaching one of his philosophy classes, and at the end of the class, uh, an arrogant and antagonistic student raised his hand, and he made it very clear that he disagreed with Dallas on several points, and his disagreement was obnoxious. It was clearly incorrect. The rest of the students in the class knew that his student, this student's argument was weak, that Dallas could demolish it if he wanted to, but instead of refuting the student's argument, Dallas said something like this. I think that's a good place for us to end today. I'll we'll see you next week. And he dismissed the class. And the class got up, started walking out, and as they were walking out, one of the students approached Dallas and said, why did you do that? You could have destroyed his argument in front of everyone. Why did you just let it go? And this was Dallas's response. He said, I'm practicing the discipline of not having the last word. In other words, He was practicing the spiritual discipline of silence even though in the moment he wasn't in solitude. So that's an example of what it might look like to practice silence while you're with other people. On the other hand, here's an example of what it might look like to practice solitude without the silence. Dawson Trotman, he was the founder of Navigators, very famous ministry you're probably familiar with. He would routinely walk to the end of his street. At the end of his street was a grassy knoll And he would often walk through that grassy knoll for an hour or more, singing praises to God, reciting scripture out loud, praying out loud. So he was alone in solitude, but he wasn't being silent, he was speaking. So you can see it's possible to practice them independently, but most often we do think of them together as silence and solitude. And that's kind of how we're going to think about them this afternoon as these coexisting disciplines. So a few things I want you to know about the, dis- the definitions up there. The first is that silence and solitude are voluntary disciplines. So they're voluntary in that we have to make a conscious decision and a conscious action to practice them. So all of us can and sometimes do sit in our homes. Maybe we're by ourselves looking at our cell phones or looking at a TV screen. We're alone, we're being quiet, but we're not really practicing the spiritual discipline of silence and solitude because we haven't consciously set our action, our purpose toward that end. So it's voluntary, it's conscious. second thing to note in the definition is that these are temporary disciplines. So they're temporary and that they're to be practiced in short periods of time, anywhere from a few minutes to a few days. Because we know that faithfulness requires that we not remain by ourselves in silence perpetually. We must also practice the spiritual discipline of fellowship, worship, confession, which require us to engage with other people. We have to care for our families. We have to labor in our vocations. We have to share the gospel. So silence and solitude must necessarily be a temporary discipline. Last thing to note about the definitions, that silence and solitude are practiced with a spiritual purpose or a spiritual goal in mind. So this is not... Seeking silence and solitude for the sake of silence and solitude. This is silence and solitude as a means to a desired spiritual end. And we'll talk about some of those spiritual purposes or goals in just a moment. But before we get to the purposes, I want us to just think about, consider, reflect on Jesus' practice of silence and solitude as we find them in the Gospels. So here's just a few examples of how Jesus practiced silence and solitude. We're told that after his baptism, Matthew chapter 3, immediately the Spirit leads him into the desert where he's alone for 40 days. So 40 days of solitude. Before he handpicks his 12 disciples in Luke chapter 6, Luke tells us that he spent all night alone in prayer. When he learned that John the Baptist, his cousin and forerunner, had been beheaded, he withdrew to a desolate place by himself to pray. And then after feeding the 5,000, he dismissed them, he dismissed the crowd, he dismissed the disciples, and he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. So we see this repeated pattern throughout the Gospels. We see Jesus with the crowds, Jesus with the twelve, Jesus by himself, Jesus with the crowds, Jesus with the twelve, Jesus by himself. There's a pattern here which Jesus was consistently practicing silence and solitude. Not only did he practice it, but he actually encouraged his disciples to practice it as well. If you remember how he sent out the disciples two by two throughout the region to proclaim the kingdom and perform miracles, they came back to him after those mission trips, they reported to him everything that happened, and Mark tells us that after hearing the report Jesus said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. So he's encouraging his disciples to follow his rhythmic pattern of public ministry, private devotion. Public ministry, private devotion. So here's the simple point that I want to make in talking about the way Jesus practiced silence and solitude. It's just to say this, that he practiced silence and solitude and he was way more important than you and me. Can we agree on that? He was way more important than any of us. He was way busier than any of us. He had the power to heal every person that he touched. He had the power to redeem every broken situation he encountered. He had the ability to perform great signs and wonders so as to draw the whole world to himself in the gospel. And yet he had the ability to look at all of these great needs and say, what's most important in this moment right now is for me to be alone in silence and solitude, to be with my father, to talk with him in prayer, to seek his will, to be physically, mentally, and spiritually restored. So if it was necessary for Jesus, God in the flesh, it must surely be necessary for us too. Jesus models and encourages this voluntary and temporary practice of silence and solitude. So we've defined silence and solitude, we've talked about how Jesus modeled it, how he encouraged it for his followers. Now let's talk about some purposes for silence and solitude. So obviously, we've talked about this, we've tried to hit on this throughout every class. The overarching purpose for practicing the spiritual disciplines is growth and godliness. 1 Timothy 4.7, we want to train ourselves for the purpose of godliness. We want to walk the path of disciplined grace. So that's obviously one of the ends of silence and solitude, one of its goals, one of its purposes. But more specifically, Whitney gives a few specific purposes for silence and solitude. Here's the first one. He says it's a complementary discipline to other disciplines. So silence and solitude is a beneficial discipline to practice in complementarity with other spiritual disciplines like Bible intake, prayer, worship. So silence and solitude helps us eliminate distractions so that we can truly focus on and respond to God in our times of personal devotion. So in this way, silence and solitude is a beneficial discipline complementary discipline to other disciplines for speaking and hearing from God generally. So that's fairly obvious as a way that silence and solitude complements some of those other disciplines, but maybe one you don't think about is silence and solitude as a complementary discipline to fellowship. So silence and solitude has to be understood, like we talked about, in this ongoing, as an ongoing rhythm where there's this rhythm of being alone, being with people, having silence and solitude, being together with fellowship. Whitney says, without silence and solitude, we can be active but shallow. Without fellowship, we can be deep but stagnant. Christ-likeness requires both sides of the equation. So this is the part where it's really important for us to know ourselves, the way that we're wired, and for us to challenge ourselves appropriately. So if you're an extrovert, It's always on the go, spending time with people. You probably lean more heavily on the side of fellowship. The discipline of fellowship is easy for you. You enjoy it. But if you want to avoid being spiritually shallow, you're going to need to discipline yourself to practice silence and solitude. And the opposite is also true. If you're an introvert, you love to retreat to quiet places by yourself. That comes naturally for you. You enjoy doing it. But if you never practice fellowship your spiritual life is going to be stagnant. God has designed these two disciplines to exist together, silence and solitude, fellowship in a rhythmic pattern. Second purpose of silence and solitude is an expression of faith in God. So I've heard it said that there are three lies that we humans tend to believe. One is I am what I do. Two is I am what I have. Three is I am what other people say or think of me. All of us have a tendency to believe all of those lies at points, but probably, if you thought about it, there's one lie of those three that kind of sticks with you more than the others. It's maybe a challenge for you to resist believing. The biggest one for me, the one that I struggle not to believe, is I am what I do. So, you can imagine, silence and solitude can be pretty challenging for me. Anytime I sit down to have silence and solitude, this is especially when I first started practicing it several years ago, my mind would immediately go to the long list of things that need to get done. I start hearing this voice in my head saying, you're wasting your time. You're not getting anything done. You're being irresponsible. You aren't accomplishing anything. Problems need solved. People need saved. Come on, let's go. So, When I first started practicing silence and solitude, I would probably spend the first 15 minutes just wrestling those thoughts in my mind. There were zero thoughts about God and devotion, and all these thoughts that were wrestling this lie in my head, I am what I do, I am what I do, I am what I do. And so this is how silence and solitude can be practiced as an expression of faith in God. Today, silence and solitude is probably my favorite spiritual discipline of all the spiritual disciplines. And I think it's for this reason. Because it's my time in the day to step back and to say, I am not what I do. I am the son of the living God who holds all things together by the purpose of his will. He doesn't need me. This world is going to go right on without me. And I am to rest in him. It's my moment in the day to hear the words of Moses that he spoke to Israel at the Red Sea. He said, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Silence and solitude as an expression of faith in God's providence, in his provision, in his salvation. So it's through silence and solitude that we can regain the spiritual perspective that is lost in the hustle and bustle and noisiness of daily life. Third purpose for silence and solitude, as a way of learning to control the tongue. So that was the purpose that Dallas Willard had in mind when he was practicing silence in front of his students. The discipline of not having the last word, silence, as a way of learning to control the tongue. Proverbs 27:28 says whoever restrains his words has knowledge and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise when he closes his lips he is deemed intelligent so it's through the spiritual discipline of silence that we can sharpen our ability to observe and to listen. So our capacity for holding thoughts and words before they're released into the world can be extended as we practice silence and solitude. And with time, we can increasingly learn to trust God with matters which maybe normally we would be obliged to speak on and maybe speak too much. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, real silence, real stillness, really holding one's tongue comes only as the sober consequence of spiritual stillness that's one purpose of silence and solitude learning to control the tongue so let's talk about some applications for silence and solitude the first one that Whitney gives I think it's a good one is called he calls them minute retreats so for some of you especially if you have small kids finding an extended time to have silence and solitude can be hard to come by So rather than having an extended window of silence and solitude, you may have to figure out how to capture these little minute retreats, is what Whitney calls them, throughout the day. While the kids are temporarily preoccupied with a toy, nap time, maybe they're watching a TV show, you're going to have to be creative and intentional to build in these minute retreats in your day to have silence and solitude. And even if you don't have small kids, I think this can be a really healthy and beneficial practice for you too, Remember, our aim is to live a single-story life, God in all of life. And sometimes I think if we only practice the dis- disciplines in our 30, 45-minute quiet time in the morning and we never think about in the rest of the day, we're kind of reinforcing in our brains this idea of uh, two-story life. So one of the ways we can bring those two stories together, single-story life lived all, all under God, is to practice these kind of minute retreats throughout the day. So finding little chunks of time where you can... Focus on and respond to God. Maybe your drive to work. Maybe before each meal. As you walk from one meeting to the next at work. I would encourage you to fight the temptation to fill that time with a screen. And instead make it into a minute retreat. a Time to stop in your heart, your mind, and draw near to God. So minute retreats, one thing you can do. The second is daily time. Right, This is just your quiet time. Hopefully there's a a chunk of time each day that's longer than a minute or two where you're taking time to focus on, respond to God in a setting that's quiet where you're away from other people. A couple of of things to do to help yourself with that. The first is uh, identify a quiet time place. So if you don't have a quiet time place, that could be uh, something to think about finding, creating for you for a couple of reasons. The first is for the sake of routine the sake of familiarity, the elimination of distractions. So over time, what you'll find is if you develop a quiet time place, when you go to that place in the morning, in the evening, whenever you do it, your, your body just kind of knows, hey, this is what we do here. We have quiet time in this space. It's a space that you can, if your house is crazy because you have little kids like mine, like, I can keep this square foot clean and clutter-free, so I can have quiet time here. I can't control everything out there, but this space is, is, the, is the clutter-free space. It's my quiet time space. So that's one reason to develop a space. The other one that I think can be helpful is that you can use that space as a way to communicate to other people in your house, hey, I'm having, I'm having some sacred time here. When you see mommy or daddy in this chair in the morning, that means we're trying to have quiet time. It's a great opportunity for you to teach your kids about the importance of having quiet time. And the other thing is, once, they're, once they get older, they can acknowledge, oh, mom or daddy's in their chair. Uh, I can leave them alone for a little bit. So one of my favorite stories of this is Susanna Wesley. Some of you probably heard this, flor- this story. She was the mother of John Wesley, who started the Methodist movement, and Charles Wesley, who was a profet- pro- prolific hymn writer and she raised a large family. I think she had eight or 10 kids, and for many years, you can imagine having that that many kids, not being able to distract them with TV, she found it very difficult to have quiet time to herself. And so her method, her quiet time place was, she would pull her apron up over her head in the house, and she would read her Bible and pray underneath her apron. And she trained the older kids if you see me with my apron over my head, I need a few minutes, you take care of the younger ones. Right? So that's, that's creative. Creating a space in your house where you can have some solitude, some silence, some time alone to focus on God. So think about creating a space for that daily time. Third application for silence and solitude would be occasional day or weekend retreats. So in addition to your quiet time each day, your minute retreats. It might be beneficial for you once a year or every six months to have a a day or a weekend of silence and solitude to retreat away. I did one last year. There's a place up in Bel Air called the Spiritual Life Center. It's run by the Catholic Diocese of Wichita, but you don't have to be a Catholic to use the facility. It's a really peaceful place, affordable place for a weekend retreat pretty close by here in town. So, That might be an option to check out if you want to try a longer period of silence and solitude. My suggestion to you, if you're going to do a a day or a weekend retreat, is to map out your time beforehand in 30-minute to 60-minute chunks. Say, here's what I'm going to do in these these phases of time. Otherwise, you might spend more time thinking about what you should be doing than actually doing anything. So map it out. If you get into something, you're like, I'm really enjoying this, God is speaking to me, I'm worshiping, you know, you can adjust from the schedule. You don't have to follow it rigidly, but at least gives you an idea for how you're going to spend your time there in your extended day or weekend retreat. Um, spouses with kids, one thing that you can do is trade, right? We, obviously, we can't go both do this together and leave our kids with somebody else all weekend. So maybe, maybe you say, this Saturday is, is your Saturday, and then a month from now, I'm going to have a Saturday. We're going to take turns because this is important for both of us, but we can't do it at the same time. So thinking about ways you can trade off uh, extended periods of, of silence and solitude. So that's silence and solitude. So you have some practical things you can think about this week as far as minute retreats, quiet time, creating a space, maybe putting something on the calendar for a day or a weekend retreat. So we're going to switch gears now pretty quickly. We're going to start going a different direction. I know it's a lot of information. Just hang with us. Capture what you can. We're going to start talking about fasting now. So here's Whitney's definition of fasting. Well, first, I think it's it's interesting to hear what he has to say. He says that fasting is the most feared and misunderstood of all the spiritual disciplines. And he argues that this fear and misunderstanding is a consequence of the famine of contemporary awareness of fasting and the reality that few disciplines go so radically against the flesh and the mainstream of culture as this one. So here's his definition of fasting. He says, Christian fasting is a believer's voluntary abstinence from food for spiritual purposes. Voluntary abstinence from food for spiritual purposes. So, a few key words to note in this definition. The first is the word believer and spiritual purposes. We need to differentiate Christian fasting from other forms of fasting that we might encounter today. So, fasting, if you're not aware, is a very common religious practice in religions apart from Christianity. Muslims, for example, fast annually during Ramadan, they observe this sun up to sundown fast, and it's one of the five pillars of Islam, very important for their religion. But we're not talking about general religious fasting, nor are we talking about forms of fasting that exist in secular culture. One of the big things lately is intermittent fasting. You've probably heard about it. Maybe you do it. It's a popular diet trend in America, has been the past few years, because of its perceived health benefits. But intermittent fasting as a dietary pattern takes a physical, not a spiritual purpose as its focus. And thus, it's distinguished from Christian fasting. Christian fasting is done by believers in Jesus Christ for spiritual, not physical purposes. We're going to talk about some of those per- spiritual purposes shortly. Second key word to notice in the definition is the word food. The bib- biblical fasting is voluntary abstinence from food. In a couple instances in Scripture, you'll see that a person fasts from food and water. That does We do see some precedents for that, but... But by the most common form form of, of fasting is just food. Now it's important to note the word "food" here, because you'll often hear of spe- Christians speak of fasting from things like social media, video games, watching sports, red meat, etc. And I'm not saying that abstaining from those things for a time or even altogether is wrong. In fact, it could be very physically and mentally and spiritually beneficial for some of those things. But it's not technically what the biblical writers had in mind when they talked about fasting. They were speaking about abstaining specifically from food for spiritual purposes. So there's your definition of fasting, big picture definition. And now I want to look at, again, how Jesus modeled and encouraged fasting. For his followers, So one quick question that Christians might ask is, do I really have to fast? Do really people do that? Maybe no one, if you're like me, no one even really talked about fasting. I never even really heard of it until I was into my 20s. Do people really still do that today? Do I have to do that? Is it actually commanded in the New Testament? Well, here's how I would respond to that question. The first thing I would say is that Jesus fasted. A couple minutes ago, I talked about how Jesus, after his baptism retreated to the wilderness for 40 days. One of the things he did while he was having those 40 days of solitude was he fasted. And not only did Jesus fast, he also assumed that his followers would fast. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he instructed the audience about fasting saying, Matthew 6, and when you fast, and then he gives instruction about fasting. So he's not if you fast, it's When you fast, so Jesus seems to be communicating the assumption that his followers are going to fast, and he reinforces this idea in Matthew 9. It says in verses 14 through 15, then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So Jesus says, Just as no wedding guest would mourn in the presence of the groom on his joyous wedding day, my disciples are not going to fast while I'm here with them in my bodily presence. But the days are coming, he says, when I'll be taken from them, and then they will fast. So those days that he's speaking about are our present age, right? This eschaton between his first coming and his second coming, this time of the church's ministry on earth. So to the person who asks, do I really have to fast? I would say Jesus did, Jesus did fast, and he assumed that his followers would fast. But maybe better yet, you might say, well, you're asking the wrong question. You don't have to fast, but you get to fast as a way of drawing near to God, your Savior. So we've talked about the definition, talked about the assumption, Jesus' assumption that his followers would fast, and we're going to talk about spiritual purposes, but before we do, I'm going to... Talk about the heart of fasting. I talked about Jesus' teaching on fasting in Matthew 6. Let me tell you how he finishes that, because it's really important as we talk about fasting. He says, "Um, When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So this teaching on fasting falls within a broader section in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus is, is warning his followers about external acts of righteousness. So he's warning them not to be like the Pharisees. The Pharisees, what what Jesus condemned the Pharisees for often was performing religious actions so as to draw attention to themselves, to draw praise to themselves, to make themselves look more righteous than other people. And Jesus calls them hypocrites. So we have to be cautious as we exercise the spiritual disciplines that we don't veer into self-righteousness. Either the self-righteousness that we pursue by having other people applaud us or the self-righteousness that we pursue by applauding ourselves on the inside for doing good things. So you remember Foster's imagery from the first class. We talked about walking the path of disciplined grace. We talked about how one of the ditches was the ditch of moralism. The ditch of self-righteousness. That's what Jesus is warning against here. So our hearts, as we fast are to be focused on God. As with all the spiritual disciplines, our hearts are to be focused on God. Our hearts aren't to be focused on ourselves. Our hearts aren't to be focused on others. they should be focused on God. We must not, as Jesus says, let our left hand know what our right hand is doing. So we, the goal is to move beyond any kind of self-consciousness to a God-consciousness. Our motivation is not to earn favor of others or to earn psychological favor from ourselves. Our motivation is not to earn God's favor. It's to put off the life of the flesh and to put on a life lived to the one true God. And so in order to resist the temptation of our flesh, to try to earn favor from other people or applaud ourselves on the inside, Jesus is saying it would be a good practice for you to just practice this secretly to not tell other people that you're doing this so you don't find yourself building yourself up to do it. So he's not giving a law here. He's not saying that if somebody finds out you're fasting, then your fasting is is futile. He's giving a principle, though, that we ought to think about our hearts as we're doing this and make sure we're not doing it to try to earn favor from God or earn favor from other people. And I'll talk a little bit more about how we do that when we start to talk about application. Application. But before we talk about application, I want to talk about purposes. Why do we fast? What's the goal of fasting? Whitney, in his book, if you're reading through it, he's going to offer 10 different purposes for fasting. All of them with biblical support. We don't have time to talk about all of them, so we're going to focus on one. But I will put the the list of the other nine up there. You can see it. Purposes of fasting, seeking God's guidance, guidance, expressing grief seeking deliverance or protection, expressing repentance and return to God, humbling oneself before God, expressing concern for the work of God, ministering to the needs of others, overcoming temptation, and expressing love and worship to God. So Whitney in his book gives a biblical precedent for all of those forms of fasting. You can look at it if you're curious. But the purpose that I want to focus on this afternoon is that of fasting as a way to strengthen prayer. And this is the purpose that Scripture most emphasizes when it comes to fasting. Fasting is a way to strengthen prayer. And really, if you look at the other nine disciplines there, it's hard to, to, our purpose is there, it's hard to practice any of those without prayer. So John Calvin says, "...whenever men are to pray to God concerning any great matter, it would be expedient to appoint fasting along with prayer." So fasting and prayer to be seen as friends. But there's one nuance to this to pay attention to. It's that fasting doesn't change God's hearing. Okay, fasting doesn't change God's hearing. I want you to hear that. What I want you to see is that fasting changes our praying. Fasting doesn't change God's hearing. It changes our praying. It doesn't somehow give us closer access to God. It doesn't uh, give our prayers some kind of expedited service in the economy of the way that God hears prayers but it does make us ask more frequently and more persistently and more earnestly. So John Piper says that fasting is an intensifier of spiritual desire. An intensifier of spiritual desire. And here's how this works out practically. How many of you ever exercise consistently, somewhat consistently, okay? How many of you ever struggle with the desire to exercise consistently somewhat consistently okay so all of us know probably all of us know that our bodies need at least 30 minutes of exercise each day to remain somewhat healthy problem is sometimes we don't particularly want to do that we lack the motivation we lack the sense of urgency we need a helper we need an intensifier of desire how many of you have been to an exercise class at the y Stacy, do you still teach classes, cycle classes? Stacy, a, a, she teaches cycle classes at the Y. You should go to one of her classes if you haven't. So if you've never been to one, if you've never been to a cycle class, maybe you've walked by one. If you don't know if you've walked by one, if you've been walking through the Y and you hear someone shouting in one of the rooms, really loud, upbeat music playing and, and people shouting, you probably walked by a cycle class. Maybe it was Stacy's, maybe that was her yelling. So here's why many people find exercise classes beneficial because it helps them with motivation. It helps with a sense of urgency. It's kind of an intensifier of physical desire. Right? We know that we should work out. We don't really want to work out. And we know if we go to this class, we're going to have some accountability and we're going to have an instructor. And the instructor is going to play this upbeat music and they're going to yell at us and that's going to be our intensifier. Of, spiritual, of physical desire. It's going to help us get done what we know we need to get done. So fasting is like our prayer instructor. Fasting exists to reinforce and magnify our desire to pray. It spurs us on what we know we should do, but maybe we're lacking the motivation to do in the first place. So here's how this plays out. What happens when you voluntarily abstain from food. What will happen? You get hungry. Perfect. So what happens when your body gets hungry? You start to get this feeling in your stomach, right? Your stomach starts making these funny sounds. You feel this kind of instinct, don't you? Go find something to eat. After a while, you might get lightheaded. You might get a strange taste in your mouth. You might get irritable. You get all these physical responses that your body Produces when you're hungry. And in a fast, all of those symptoms serve as cues to pray. Kind of like the, the instructor. She gives you the cues. Stand up. Go hard. Slow down. Fasting, your, your physical cues are your instructor for praying. So when your stomach growls, you pause and you pray. When you feel tempted to go grab something to eat, you grab Bible instead, and you turn to a passage that you're focusing on. When you notice feeling lightheaded, you pause and pray. You see how this works. It's an intensifier of spiritual desire. And what you find if you fast through a day is that at the end of the day, you prayed way more than you had when the days you didn't fast. And you'll also find yourself humbled through the process because you'll be reminded how frail you are as a human and how much you're dependent on God for life and sustenance. So that's how fasting works. It's purpose as a spiritual intensifier of desire. Now let's talk practical, some practical methods as we think about application for fasting. First thing I would say, if you're pregnant, you're breastfeeding, you have a medical condition like diabetes, uh, you've struggled with eating disorders throughout your life, uh, you need to be cautious. Right? Definitely want to talk to your doctor, And if it's the eating disorder thing, you need to make sure you've had some consistent victory over that in your life before you even think about fasting. And even if you start to endeavor in fasting, you need to make sure you have encouragement and accountability around you before you really dive into that. So first is if you have any of those things, talk to a doctor uh, to make sure it's safe for you to fast. Second thing is to choose in time and duration for your fast. You want to set a clear starting point, and you want to set a clear ending point. So you would say, on Monday, I'm going to fast from breakfast till dinner. I'm going to wake up 6 a.m., I'm going to eat breakfast, and then I'm not going to eat again until I eat dinner with my family at 6 p.m. And I'm going to do a 12-hour fast. And if you've never fasted before, that would be my recommend, recommendation to start. Just do a 12-hour fast and fast through lunch. And as you fast, you can build up your duration if you would like to. So third thing, and I, this is the most important thing about fasting hear me say anything about fasting make sure you remember this set a clear purpose for your fast set a clear purpose for your fast it could be one of the other nine purposes that Whitney suggests or it could be uh, for the purpose of strengthening prayer could be a blend of those purposes but regardless of what purpose you choose here's why this step is so important because if you don't set a clear purpose you're just going to end up thinking about how hungry you are all day And you're going to focus on yourself, and you're going to be really miserable. And then you're going to say, this fasting stuff doesn't work. It's not that fasting doesn't work. It's that you didn't set a clear purpose. If you don't set a clear purpose, you're just going to remember how hungry you are. But if you set a clear purpose, then all of a sudden your hunger will be fruitful because it's going to cue you to take spiritual action on that purpose that you've set for yourself. So... For example, you might say, say I want to fast today, and I just want to have a day of confession. And I'm going to use Psalm 51. That's one of the assignments, by the way, that you can practice after the class is done and write a report on. I'm going to use Psalm 51. That's the Psalm of David where he says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And so you're going to carry around your Bible with a bookmark in Psalm 51, and every time you get hungry, you're going to open it up, and you're going to read Psalm 51, and you're going to confess to God your need for him, your sin, turn to him. Set a purpose? Fourth thing, I would say remember Jesus' teaching about the heart of fasting and the principle of secrecy. So as much as you can, just keep your fast to yourself. Don't mention it to other people. Don't schedule anything over your lunch hour. Just plan to have that time to yourself, away from others. Um, Remember the heart of fasting. Fifth, I would say make friends with the physical effects of hunger. Make friends with the physical effects of hunger when you're fasting. So when you fast, you're going to experience a variety of physical sensations. Hunger, obviously, growling stomach, lightheadedness, headache, fatigue, trouble concentrating, irritability. And here's the key for the moments of discomfort. If you want to have a successful fast, it's don't panic and don't run to the refrigerator. Remember that these physical symptoms are a normal part of fasting and that you're going to be okay. The other thing I would say is don't view hunger as an enemy. Don't view hunger as the enemy, because when we begin to view hunger as the enemy of the fast, one of two things happens. Either our mind begins to focus on beating the enemy, I just got to beat the enemy. Four more hours, and I'll beat the enemy, right? All of a sudden, the purpose of your fast is gone. The other thing that, that happens is you say, I can't beat the enemy, I'm giving up. Okay, all of that happens when we view hunger as an enemy that's got to be beaten. Instead, view hunger as a friend those days. Your hunger is, is helping you spiritually to accomplish what you want to accomplish. Lastly, kind of practical thing about fasting, I would say break your fast thoughtfully and solemnly. So before you break your fast with your meal, thank God for the opportunity to draw near to Him in fasting, Thank him for giving you your daily bread. And then eat slowly and enjoy your food. Enjoy, uh, I would say, avoid chasing the discipline of fasting with the, glut- with the sin of gluttony. Right? <laughs> that kind of defeats the purpose. So if your, your fast is done, and you're going to go eat a double cheeseburger and fries and a milkshake. Um, probably not the best way to break your fast. So, But I would say at the same time, do what you need to do to replenish your body. Remember, the goal is spiritual, not physical. So you're going to need to get up, go to work the next day, function like you should be, take care of your kids. So when your fast is done, make sure you replenish your body. Right? Sometimes if I fast, I'll eat dinner, and then before bed, I'll eat another meal. And My wife would ask, doesn't that kind of defeat the purpose? No, because the purpose is not physical, right? As long as I'm not... Being gluttonous before bed, that doesn't defeat the purpose. I'm trying to get calories back in so I can function tomorrow. My spiritual purpose for the fast is finished now, so I'm now replenishing so I can get ready for tomorrow. So that's a lot of information about fasting. Um, We could choose a day this coming week to do a 12-hour fast. If that's something you want to try to do, give it a shot, set a purpose, and see how it goes. All right, I'm going to turn it over to Brenda. Brennan, come on up. She's going to talk about prayer, and we'll go from there.
1: All right, so I'm going to talk about prayer. So I have been thinking about and praying about what do I talk about with regard to prayer, because it is not a new topic to people, but it is a huge topic. So what do we talk about in 30 minutes? So many books have been written on it, how to do it, why to do it, when to do it, what to pray about, and so on, and we can easily overcomplicate prayer. So what is your perspective about prayer? In his book, A Praying Life, which is a great book, by the way, Paul Miller talks about how we can sometimes view God as a prayer machine. And if that's the case, we're often bound to be disappointed. He talks about even subconsciously viewing prayer as like a vending machine. You put your coin in and you get something out. Or maybe it's, you think it's like you put your coin in and it gets stuck. You can see it right there. It's just hanging on by the little curly thing. It got stuck. We'll be disappointed. Or maybe, he says, you view it like a slot machine. You put your coin in, you pull the handle, and then you see if the lights go off and you win or if you just lost your money. And if that's how we view it, we're going to be disappointed. So the Westminster Catechism defines prayer as an offering up of our desires unto God in the name of Christ. And that's up there, Trace, if you want to put it up. An offering up of our desires unto God in the name of Christ by the help of his spirit with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. That's a great definition of prayer, and I'd encourage you to ponder that at some point. So there are other definitions as well. The most basic definition is talking to God, and that indicates to us that prayer is not passive reflection. It is direct address to God, and prayer is the primary way for a believer in Jesus Christ to communicate his emotions and desires with God and to have fellowship with God. And I was looking at the survey that gives a lot of detail about people's prayer lives, and my takeaway from that survey was two things. One, the majority of people that they surveyed said they pray, regardless of whether whether they are Christian or not, and even almost half of those who said they had no defined belief system say they pray. Interesting, right? Number two, of people who describe themselves as evangelical, 79% say they pray daily. So think about the survey that we talked about in week one about how many people read the Bible. That survey said fewer than 18% of people who said they are Christians read the Bible every day. And 23% of people who say they are Christians never read the Bible. So if those surveys are correct, Far more Christians say they pray than read the Bible. Interesting. I found that really interesting, but not honestly too surprising. So, and also, the number of people in general who pray exceeds the number who don't pray, irregardless of their faith system, whether they have one or not. But what does prayer mean to us? Because it's not the same thing to everybody. And often today, we we will hear things like, I'll send you good thoughts, Anybody heard that one? I'll send you some good energy. I'll hold space in my thoughts for you. Which I that one's an interesting one to me. Or even you're in my heart, right? And sometimes maybe we even hesitate to sell to tell someone that we're praying for them, depending on our relationship with them or what we know about their relationship to God. We might even hesitate to use that word. We might not. But it is sometimes something that I think about, and not because I'm afraid of saying that word, but I'm like, is that going to put a barrier in my ability to have relationship with this person? So I have one gal that sometimes I'll say it, and sometimes I will say something different. And not because I have any timidity about saying prayer. It's because I'm thinking about long-term relationship because it means something different to her. So, But as followers of Christ... We know our prayers are addressed to God about our concerns and it's not merely sending thoughts or energy out into the universe. And I find great comfort in that because God is the object of our prayers and we have someone we pray to because we believe in him and we know he's all-powerful, all-loving, and all-knowing. And he is the God of the universe who yet still knows us personally. And you might say, well, that's obvious, but I think it's really important for us to remember that when we're praying, because we don't want to be influenced by culture, and we want our faith in praying to be founded in the fact of who God is and that he hears us, and we want to remember we're not, we're not merely trying to pull that slot machine handle. So one book on Christian prayer describes 21 different types of prayer. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you 21 different types of prayer. But there are actually some really good practices in that book, but I want to focus on what Richard Foster calls simple simple prayer, because that's the type of prayer that you will mostly find in the Bible. And simple prayer is ordinary people bringing ordinary concerns to a loving and compassionate father. And Foster says that sometimes people wanna skip over what they call simple prayer because they think it seems more sophisticated to try some more complicated types of prayer. And that doesn't mean that you don't explore different ways to pray, but effective prayer does not have to be complicated and it shouldn't be complicated. Prayer is the Christian's way of communicating with God. We pray in order to praise God, to thank him, to tell him how much we love him, We tell him what's going on in our lives. We pray to make requests and seek guidance guidance and ask for wisdom. And God loves this exchange with his children. And it is an exchange. And I love Zephaniah 3.17. Anybody remember the song we used to sing? He will take great delight in you. So remember that Whitney said there is no more important spiritual discipline than Bible intake? Well, listen to this. He said, the most important spiritual disciplines are Bible intake and prayer in that order. So the surveys I just talked about, right? What do people tend to do more? At least according to those surveys, they tend to pray more than intake the Bible. And both are important. But Bible intake is a necessary foundation for prayer. The Bible informs our prayers. It teaches us how to pray. It's God's voice to us, and it is his living and active word. And we want communication to be both directions. So both are necessary. And the more that we are in God's word, the more we're going to recognize his voice. So, what does the Bible say about prayer? A whole lot. And I heard somebody say recently that there are more than 650 prayers in the Bible. I thought that was fascinating. I didn't look to see if there's somewhere where you can go. There's a a document with all 650, but it's definitely something to look into. Look for those prayers in the Bible. And that doesn't even include all the verses that tell us to pray. And it's important for us to note that Jesus expects us to pray. Just like he said, when you fast, that Trace just quoted, he also says, when you pray. He says it four times in one chapter in Matthew, and that's part of the Sermon on the Mount. He also says, so I say to you, ask, seek, and knock. And then again in Luke 18, he says, then Jesus told his disciples they should always pray and not give up. It's also clear in the remainder of the New Testament that we're told to pray. So Colossians 4.2 says, be devoted to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And I really, as I was doing this, that second word, or that second um, Part of it, being watchful and thankful, really stood out to me, because we're not just to be prayerful, we're also to be watching what God is doing. 1 Thessalonians says, Pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And then in Philippians 4, 6, Paul said, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So in other words, worry about nothing, pray about everything, and pray all the time. Everybody ready to do that? So what does it mean when the Bible tells us to devote ourselves to prayer? I want to look at that a little bit more closely. So the phrases, be devoted to, persevere in, continue in, occur multiple times in the New Testament in relation to prayer. And so how do we devote ourselves to prayer? What does that actually look like? Well, Whitney reminds, reminds us to ask ourselves, what are we devoted to? Because everyone is devoted to something. And if we're devoted to something, then we make time for it. And God wants both our devotion and our prayer. And devotion means, devotion to prayer means we pray often and we pray regularly. And as with some of the other disciplines, Prayer should be a part of our offensive strategy and our defensive strategy. So being devoted to prayer means that you take steps to see that it's a regular part of your life, the same way that eating and sleeping are. So we pray spontaneously as things come up, but we also plan to pray. There's that that plan word that we've said a lot. A plan is important. And so when we're told to be devoted to or to pray continually, it clearly doesn't mean that we do nothing but pray. Because as Trace mentioned, we see that the Bible clearly expects other things of us, right? That couldn't happen at the same time that we are consciously praying. But we cultivate a reflex that we pray regularly, we pray continuously, and we pray as things come up, we pray as we go, we we plan to pray. So I love Dr. Whitney's perspective on prayer, that we should not just see prayer as a divine summons, but also as a royal invitation. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So prayer is an invitation. It's an invitation for us to ask for what we need. It's an invitation to a deeper relationship with God. And the more you approach the the throne, the more confident you're going to be in that throne, And that you will receive mercy and grace to help you. So prayer is simple, and prayer is ongoing, and prayer is also learned. And so sometimes we're not quite sure how to pray. And if so, you're in good company. Because in Luke 11, we read, One day Jesus was praying, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. So think about this. The disciples were Jewish, right? The majority of them were Jewish. It's not that they'd never seen anyone pray before. They had seen the priest pray. It was that they had never seen prayer in the way that Jesus was doing it. So they saw something different, and they were trying to figure out, what is he doing different here? So it's a bit of a paradox that prayer is learned, but you also don't have to be taught how to pray. Hold that intention but. Prayer is a natural cry of our heart for help in time of need. And and that's true whether somebody's a believer or not. Don't you see that in your friends who don't know the Lord? That even though they may not think they're praying, they're sending out these thoughts to the universe. They're um, asking for help. And so how do you learn to pray? Well, it's very simple. You learn to pray by praying. You also learn to pray by reading scripture and by using scripture to pray. And then you learn to pray by praying with other people, because prayer is one of those disciplines that should be both practiced personally and corporately with others. And so when the, Lord, when the disciples asked Jesus how to pray, he taught them this familiar prayer that appears in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, and I'm pretty sure most of you are familiar with it. It's called the Lord's Prayer. So I want to look at this. It says this then is how you should pray our father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. And people sometimes misunderstand the Lord's Prayer to be a prayer we are supposed to recite word for word. It's not a magic formula, as if the words themselves have some specific power or influence with God. Kind of like when people pray to receive Christ, it is not the words that they are saying, it is the heart and it's the power of God behind it, right? And so, in fact, the Bible teaches this the opposite, that He teaches us that God's far more interested in our hearts when we pray than he is in our specific actual words. And I want you to think about right before the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, Jesus also said this. He said, But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like Gentiles, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. And just as a side note, did you also remember that when Trace talked about fasting, the Lord told them to go do that in secret as well? You know, part of it's the heart here. And maybe the disciples heard Jesus say this about prayer before he went off to pray by himself. He had told them about how not not to pray, so now they wanted to know how should they pray. And in prayer, we are to pour out our hearts to God. It's not merely memorized words. And this verse does not mean that we must always pray in secret, right? It's addressing the attitude of the heart. And so, in fact, Scripture tells us that part of our prayer life should be to pray with others. And so, the Lord's Prayer should be understood as an example or a pattern of how to pray. And it gives us some of the ingredients that should go into prayer. And so, I want us to break that down so that we see sometimes what prayer can consist of. So, our Father in heaven is teaching us who to address our prayers to, to the Father, because God is the object and the recipient of our prayer. Hallowed be your name. This should be a reminder to worship God and to praise him for who he is. He is holy and sacred. The phrase, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, is a reminder that we are to pray for God's plan in our lives and the world and not our own plan. We are to pray for his kingdom, which is already and not yet. It is here in part and will be here fully when he returns again. And it's a reminder that this life is not all there is. And then give us today our daily bread. We are to ask for the things our need that we need and we are also to thank God for providing the things that we need. So forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. This should prompt us to confess our sins to God to turn from those sins, and also to forgive others as God has forgiven us. And then the conclusion, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, is a plea for help in achieving victory over sin and a request for protection from the attacks of the enemy. There's a whole lot packed into that one prayer, right? And that's just one of 650 in the Bible. So, the Lord's Prayer is not a prayer that we're to mindlessly recite back to God, and maybe this is why the disciples asked Jesus how to pray. What had they seen modeled before? Because we know they had probably seen prayer lots of times. So, the Lord's Prayer is only an example of how we could be praying, and is there anything wrong with memorizing it? Well, of course not, right? And is there anything wrong with praying it back to God? Absolutely not. Not if your heart is in it and you truly mean the words that you say, because as we already talked about, our heart's more, God's more interested in our heart than in us praying, praying the perfect words. So the Lord's Prayer is a pattern, an example, and so we're going to look at a couple more methods, and I think there are so many Books out there about how to pray and what to pray and to learn about prayer. And I think there's so much material because many people want to pray and they aren't sure if they're doing it right or how to do it, whatever right means. And so, what I want you to remember is that these methods that we talk about are tools, but they are not rules. Tools, not rules. And so, I already said this prayer doesn't have to be complicated. And that's why we talked about how most of the prayers in the Bible are what some call simple or ordinary prayers. And it's ordinary prayers because that's where we live, right? We live an ordinary life. It's normal for us to pray about the same things. Family, finances, work or school, illnesses, our struggles, our doubts, our needs, our emotions, our lack of faith, everything. People that we're in relationship with, people that we want to come to know the Lord. And those are great things to pray about. And so we look to God in the midst of these, and we look for what he says in Scripture. So what are some ways that people pray? Well, I put a list up so that you can look at it later, and I'm not going to go through all these. I'm going to highlight a couple for you. And some of these are going to be really obvious to you, and that's great. So we already talked about the Lord's Prayer as a model. I also want to talk about Acts, because that is another model. How many people are familiar with the Acts model? A lot of you, right? So I want you to know that even when I say that we, you know, it's a, it's a tool, not a rule. And so just as we can use the Lord's Prayer, the ax is a great thing to use, but don't use it as a rule. Part of the reason Acts is so popular, it's easy to remember, and it also helps take us out of our own world, right? Because on our own, sometimes we tend to focus on supplication, which really is asking God. And so it's a reminder to adore, to confess, and to thank God. But one writer that I read, um, he kind of joked about it a little bit. He's like, we don't don't interact in any other relationship that way. And, of course, other relationships are different than a relationship with God. But Trace, when he's going home to Lily, he's not going to be, honey, I adore you. Now I want to confess, and I want to thank God for you. You know, he's not going to do it that way. And so use the acts. If it's helpful, don't use it if it's not helpful. There's also an app out there that actually is pretty good. It's called the Prayer Mate app. And so um, you just have to set up categories and add names, but you can schedule times for it to remind you. You can keep track of past prayer requests. And so if that's something that appeals to you, then that could be great. Trace also told me about a popsicle method that they use at home with his kids, and so they take popsicles, they write different um, people, friends, family members, maybe topics, they put them in a glass jar, and then every night before supper, right Trace, they pull one out, and I bet Chet pulls them out, and then they pray together as a family, right? And I think that's a great way. There's probably many more ways, but that's just one simple way to to include your children, and you know what kid doesn't like to draw a popsicle stick out of a jar? Of course, they want to eat the popsicle before that popsicle sticks used. So maybe that's part of it too. So there's also some um, different prayer books or liturgies, and so that's on the next slide. There, Trace, and so I just put those out there. Um, some people find that helpful to because, like we said, prayer is learned, and so if you want to learn by reading a Puritan's prayers. Um, then look for the modern English version, unless you really like old English. So I also want to emphasize praying with others. You know, as Trace talked about, personalities are different, and sometimes we have different preferences, but praying alone and praying with others really is very important, and it is modeled in the Bible. And so I know that praying with others can be intimidating. I remember when I was a young believer and I would pray one-on-one with someone, but I was really intimidated and unfamiliar with praying in a small group. And one time, somebody unintentionally called on me to pray in group. And so instead of saying, I really don't want to pray, I prayed out loud in my group and I didn't die. And so even though it was unintentional for that person, I think the Lord, it was the Lord's nudge to go, you can do this, you can do this. It's not that big a deal. And in fact, it helped me to take the focus off myself, right? Because I was thinking more about how I felt than that I wanted to pray to God. And so we learn by praying with others, not necessarily by the phrases they use. That's not what I'm talking about, but their heart, their concerns, how they relate to God. And other people learn from you, whether you think they do or not when you pray. And so um, there's a couple books out there that I put up there. Um, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. It's talking about lament, and I know it's been helpful to some people, and lament is really a way to express deep grief and sorrow, and it uses the books of Psalms and Lamentations, and so that's just a tool. And then if you want to be really challenged by somebody's prayer life, go read this biography about George Mueller. How many, has anybody in here read that? A few people. So George Mueller led some um, orphanages in England in the 1800s, and he kept a detailed prayer journal, multiple prayer journals, of his prayers and how God answered. And so if you want to be challenged by how much he prayed and how um, faithfully God answered, go read that. It's, it's a cool story. And so there are two more. Um, I'm looking at my time because I want to see how much time we have. So there are two more methods I want to talk about, and we're gonna, I'm going to talk about them a little more in-depth, and we're going to actually practice one of those, provided I manage my time well. So I'm going to talk about the one we're not going to practice first, and then we are going to talk about a second one, and I'm going to give you just a few minutes to practice it. So And it won't require anyone praying out loud, so if that concerns you, you can not be worried at this moment. So the first one is the prayer of examine, and so that's the Latin spelling of examine. It essentially means the exact same thing as the English word examine. But if you were looking up prayer of examine, that's probably how you want to look for it. And so the prayer of examine is a way for you to do um, kind of a spiritual inventory of your day, to examine, to, to reflect with God on our day. And I love these scriptures that describe examining psalm 139 one, oh lord you have examined me and you know everything about me and then examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith 2 corinthians 13 5 and it essentially there's a lot of more seemingly complicated ways to do it but it's essentially asking yourself a set of opposing questions asking the lord to help you think through your day in the context of these questions and so it's often the absence and the presence of. And I'll give you a couple of examples here in just a minute, but I'm not saying to use all of these questions at the same time. You can, I would just use one set. You can even come up with your own set. So the, for example, some of the questions could be you sit with God at the end of your day and you say, Lord, where did I see the presence of the fruit of the Spirit in my life today? And then where was the fruit absent in my life today? Where did I see myself exhibit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control? And where were they not present? And you could even pray one or two of these fruit. That's kind of a long list. And so if there's something in particular that you're struggling with, then focus on one or two maybe patience or faithfulness or whatever. You could also use the Philippians four eight questions. Do you remember those from last week? It's about our thought life. You can ask the Lord, where was my mind focused on things that are true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, or praiseworthy? And like I just said, maybe just focus on one or two of those. So where, were this, where was this present? Where was it absent? Where were my thoughts focused on something else? And then it could even be, where was I aware of God's presence and activity today, and was there a time when I was not? You know, I have found this helpful at various times because it just causes me to sit and reflect on my day. And so you can do this in any setting. Generally, it's done at the end of the day. You can do it in bed at night. Richard Foster talks about doing this while he's out shooting baskets by himself at night. You know, sometimes that's a way to do it, but... I think it's a good practice to be able to to try and do to just sit and reflect on your day all right so the next one we're going to talk about and we're actually going to practice this just a little bit is praying the Psalms so the Psalms were inspired by God for the purpose of being sung to God and in other words God gave the Psalms to us so that we would give the Psalms back to him And no other book of the Bible was inspired for that express purpose. Think about that. Isn't that interesting? He gave them to us so that we would give them back to him. And a great benefit of praying the Psalms is that by praying the Psalms back to God, we learn in increasing ways to pray in tune with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there's so much more that could be said, but we're going to save time to practice this. And so... um, I want to clarify a little bit here, is that we are talking about praying the Bible here, which is different than interpreting the Bible. So I'm going to get to the the imprecatory psalms, so just hold off on that. I've got a little bit more to say before we get to that. So to pray the Bible, or more specifically the psalms, you simply go through a passage line by line, talking to God about whatever comes to mind. And so you're, you're taking a line, you're speaking to God and talking to him about everything that occurs to you as you slowly read his word. And so you can pray about it even if it has nothing to do with the text. And so as I said, we're talking about praying, which is different than interpreting the Bible. Because when we're trying to interpret the Bible, we're looking for what it means. We're looking for what God inspired it to mean, and that is how we approach Bible intake. But when our primary activity is prayer and we're using the Bible to help us pray, the Holy Spirit may prompt us to pray things that we clearly know the Scripture does not mean. And so Whitney uses an exaggerated example of that. Psalm 130, verse 3, he says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? So maybe you have a friend, Mark, and it reminds you to pray for them. Well, clearly that's not what Scripture means, Right? But is it wrong to pray for Mark? No. God is using that word to help you um, pray for your friend. And so we're not looking to read something into the text, but we are merely using the language of the text to speak to God about what has come into our mind. And I think it's important to note that Whitney says he has enough confidence in the word and the spirit that if people pray this way, in the long runs, our prayers will be shaped and it will help us to pray more biblically than if we just came up with things out of our own mind. And so do you want to back up that slide, Trace, to imprecatory psalms? Anybody know what imprecatory psalm is? So it's a song, of, a psalm, song or a psalm, of judgment. And so it's where the psalmist calls for God's judgment upon his enemies, who are also presumed to be God's enemies. But how do you pray through a psalm when it contains verses like these? Oh, God, break the teeth in their mouths. (laughs) We'll talk later, Drew. (laughs) Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. I didn't remember reading that one before until I was looking for examples. Well, maybe you have somebody in your life that you're momentarily tempted to pray those things for, but it's really hard to do that with a pure motive, isn't it? And then Whitney says, I don't think we should pray verses like these with specific people in mind. Amen? Yeah. So thank you, Drew. You, do, you redeemed yourself. Just kidding. So to do that, would be, it would be hard for us to pray these verses with specific people in mind and reconcile it with Jesus' command in Matthew 5, which says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so if we are praying an imprecatory psalm, We can pray about specific sins. We can pray for God to work. We can pray for our heart. We can skip those psalms. And so let's um, go back to how we pray through a psalm. So it doesn't matter how quickly or slowly you go through a psalm. But as you read one line, we do want to try and read line by line slowly. And how do you pick which psalm to pray for? Well, kind of like Trace talked about with silence and solitude, right? If we don't make a plan, then we're going to be spending more time trying to make the plan than actually do the activity. And so some people read five psalms a day. Anybody do that? Anybody heard of doing that? Okay. So I'm not talking about reading the five five psalms every day, but that's kind of a way to help you pick a psalm. So there are 150 psalms. So if you pick five Psalms a day, you're going to go through the book of Psalms every 30 days. And so you can use that same system to pick a Psalm of the day. And the way that you do that, today's the 21st, right? So the Psalms of today, and then you add 30. So the Psalms of today would be 21, plus 30 is 51, plus 30 is 81, plus 30 is 111, and then 141. So you get the idea. And so... When you are trying to pick a psalm to, to pray, and of course you can pick whatever you want, but this is just a way to simplify it for you, Look at, start looking at those and just scan them quickly. He says don't read them because otherwise then you're going to spend all your time reading them, which is not a bad thing, but we're trying to pray here. So if you start with Psalm 21 and you go, oh, okay, that kind of connects. Or if you go to Psalm 21 and it's an imprecatory psalm, which it's not, but you're like, yeah. I'm not gonna deal with that today, so I'm gonna move on. And so that's just a way to help simplify, okay, if I wanna pray a psalm on this day, maybe you wanna plan to do this in your silence and solitude, then, okay, the psalm that sticks out to me is this particular psalm. And so, as we've already said, when you pray the psalm, you're gonna, you're gonna um, pray it slowly As something comes to mind, you're going to pause, you're going to talk to God about that. If nothing comes to mind or you don't understand it, move on. If sinful thoughts come to mind, because that sometimes does, right, when we're talking to God, take it to God, pray, and move on. And you don't have to pray anything for every verse. You just, and you don't even have to finish the verse or the psalm. But if you do, you can go on to another psalm if you have more time left. And so I found it helpful when... Um, Whitney says, you may read 20 or 30, song, 30 verses in that Psalm, but you, at the same time, you may have only five or six things that come up to pray about. That's okay. This isn't a numbers game. This is just a tool to help you practice. And so in just a minute, I'm going to have Trace put a Psalm up on the screen, and we're going to let you guys have time to practice this. And so I want you to also consider the position of your body as you pray. You don't have to do this, but Did you notice, when Terry talked about Daniel, how Daniel, 80-year-old Daniel, got on his knees three times a day to pray? So maybe sometime consider doing that. Or maybe you want to sit there and you want to put your hands up, because maybe it's this physical reminder to you of relinquish these things to God, and then also be open to receiving whatever it is that God wants to place in your hand or in your life. And so you can, if you want to, you can kneel in your chair. You can kneel at the stage. You can put your hands up or not. And it's totally up to you. So we're going to do this for about five minutes. And I know it's a quick transition, but I am confident that God can meet us here in the next few minutes. And so I am going to pray, and then we're going to put that up on the screen, and we're going to let you guys pray for a few minutes, and then I will let us know when we're done. All right, pray with me. Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to actually put into practice just in these next few minutes, praying your word, your songs back to you. God, I pray that you would meet us here where we're at. I pray that you would help people's minds to transition quickly. And I pray that you would speak to each one of us about whatever it is that you want us to hear. I pray that you would help us to pray your word back to you. Amen.